When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yes, hello again, everyone. Welcome back to Number the Brave, a presentation of Evergreen Podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy, Flynn McLean. So, Flynn, we did a Joad episode a few weeks back, and we wanted a December 1995 show, and, and now we have one. <laughs> yes, we do, and it's a, it's a, it's a great choice. It has, uh, as, as most people have noted, it's got every song from the album uh, performed from, at this concert, and very strong performances all around. I really, Sinaloa Cowboys, not one that usually says, you know, look at me, but it was really good on this night. And and New Timer was one of the more, I think the most rare song from the album. And then uh, this performance is does not reflect that at all. It's very strong and probably my favorite song of this show. Well, you jumped ahead a little because <laughs> you okay. went all the way till the end. But well, let's we, let's start from the beginning, and and he comes out to Jode, which, as we know, worked fabulously well on this tour, and and from there he did throw in some older known songs. Adam raised the cane, followed, but mostly this set is new material, including an unreleased song, "The Little Things That Count," and then you have that run of six songs at the end of the main set, starting with Youngstown and ending with "Across the Border," and we talked about how dark and sort of unrelenting the December shows were. And this recording certainly proves it, especially when you compare it to some of the later shows on the tour. But what a ballsy thing to do. I mean, really. <laughs> that That is a good point. I, I had picked up on that. Uh, one of the things that stood out for me from those shows is that there's there's so little fun. Most Springsteen shows, even even the 2005 solo shows, had some fun in them. And there's really not much fun in, in these shows. I mean, the little things that count is one of the lighter songs and even it has an edge to it. And of course my best was never good enough to close the show also kind of had that little kind of little uneasy edge to it. And so I guess it kind of leaves blinded by the light as the only any anywhere approaching fun in the whole show. I, I totally agree with you. And the other thing, and I must've noticed this in 1995 and I think I forgot about it. Because the album was performed pretty much in order. The only song that varies is Dry Lightning was moved up a little bit. And then the rest of the album was presented in the same order it was on the record. So in a way, this is really one of his, it's his first album show, I think. What, do you agree <laughs> with that? I hadn't noticed that, but that that's that's a very, very good point. Uh, he was certainly, I mean, doing, had he, very rarely had he done every song from whatever new album he was promoting at a show. Um, I guess he did it a few times in 76 for Born to Run. I don't remember too much in 75 and not on Darkness. And I don't even USA, I don't think ever had a show that had every song, at least not a bunch of shows anyway. But even then, the songs would have been presented out of sequence in the show. If you think about the Darkness tour, the songs 
certainly didn't come in the order they were in in the record. Uh, Prove It and Darkness, which are the two last songs on the record, of course, were always played early in the show. And and here, I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, that is right, that the, the, it is the album in order with just Dry Lightning moved up. Yeah, that, that's that's a good point. It is the album in order, except for uh, Dry Lightning being moved up. It's also one of the things I mentioned, Adam, you got Darkness in there and Murder Incorporated, certainly two songs that helped account for how dark the show was. And there's not a lot of familiar material here. Born in the USA is played. It, I think people did know it from this version. But of course, as we know, over the years, <laughs> some people have not known the acoustic versions. And uh, this was a particularly powerful version of the song. And then in the encores, you do get Streets of Philadelphia, which was his big hit from that particular moment. Philadelphia had just come out a couple of years earlier and he had won the Oscar. But really, this is a show that is is not very forgiving for the audience. And and as I said, a very ballsy thing to do. As, as I was listening to the show, trying to put myself back in that mindset of 1995, which hard to believe is 27 years ago. But you really think back and do you recall, how did audiences embrace this show? Now, I know there were a couple of people, you can hear them on this recording, shouting out for songs he certainly was not going to play on this night. But I, I think audiences did generally go with it, right? For the most part, yeah. Um, I remember when uh, when Backstreet's Magazine did a show-by-show tour report they actually always had a little moron factor uh (laughs) portion that's that said how loud the the audience was in in calling out requests or otherwise trying to engage bruce and and basically just not giving him the space that that bruce asked for at the beginning of the show so i always go i always go back to that and i think at the time bruce was kind of even though he just won that oscar and, and a bunch of grammys for streets of philly he was after the 92-93, you know, relative non-success of, of those two albums and that tour, Bruce, he wasn't at the top, just to say the least. And the fact that he was playing these small theaters, you had a lot of people who, they were almost all all diehards in, in these crowds. They weren't, you didn't have a lot of yahoos. If you did, they were very few and far between, even if they did show up in the moron factor segment and but i thought they for the most part the audiences were very forgiving um and very open to this to this basically an entirely new experience with of seeing bruce in concert in this way i remember the shows being so powerful and we've discussed this before especially in this december 1995 period once it loosened up it became there was certainly more fun and and there were some more recognizable songs that he brought in, although in certain cases, unrecognizable arrangements. And it really, the show worked so well on an artistic level that I I would hope, and I think that audiences did really embrace it. And as I was listening to this, it it did seem sort of like he was lost. Like it was a guy, he, he really was sort of the character, a guy carrying around his guitar, going to theaters and 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 telling these stories. And it, it's almost like an alternate path. Now, what is really fascinating is that, of course, he went back to the rock and roll, as we all know, later in the decade. And and he rediscovered, I, I think, that passion for for the big rock sound. And, and he's been doing that even with side projects. He's been doing it ever since. 
But this is really a very specific moment in time for him. And, and I'm really glad that they did finally document this specific month. Oh, I t- totally agree. Um, yeah, they, these shows had a very unique feel that even if he toured, even if he did tour solo in, in 2005 behind Devils and Dust, it was that was such a different tour, a different feel to it, whether it was just the, um, you know, the bigger venues or the fact that he was really expanding out playing piano, playing the pump organ. Um, but it was just a different animal. And totally. And, you know, this tour will have that singular distinction as being a very, I mean, there was nothing like it before and nothing like it since. No. And and we're going to talk about the Magic Tour in a little while as our main topic tonight. And that also is very distinct. But you can't compare this type of solo show to anything that occurred with the band. Oh, no, not at all. He, uh... (laughs) <laughs> we've said this said this before about about other other tours and we'll say it again tonight but he had something to say and and he stuck with it pretty much pretty much for the whole tour there was that stretch of songs obviously the border sweep between the Sinaloa the line Balboa Park and across the border those rarely changed rarely rarely changed and it was like a very it was a big headline when when they did and he had yeah this was something special he he was dedicated to what he was doing here. That is for sure. And as you say, it went all the way through the the tour in 1997. And it'll, it'll be interesting to see what they put out next from the Joe tour. We still don't have anything from that Fresno mid-California run in, in 96. Of course, out there is the third Asbury show, which was one of the great shows I think we've ever seen. So uh, there, there's still quite a bit of stuff out there that they can release from this tour. And, and I assume at some point they'll also go back to 97 for, for 95. I I don't know if they'll ever come back to it, but really this is going to be the perfect representation. I I don't know that there's going to be a need for another 95 show. It's going to be basically identical. Yes, I I agree. This was a, a perfect, perfect snapshot of, of that month with the shows and, uh, I think there were there were a lot of times in in, in late '96, especially where it they, a release would make sense. Uh, there's that uh, the doo wop, if I should fall behind, and some of that, some of the other kind of you know, for me, uh, what is it? Uh, there would never be any other for me but you, and sell it, and Santa gets a blowjob, you know, all that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> but one th- one thing I do want to say about about this release though is that it suffers about the recording anyway, it suffers from the same thing that so many of the uh, fan-recorded audience recordings had, which was the music is so loud, and then when he's talking, it's, it's so low. And it kind of, I, I, I was expecting that not to happen, but, and I didn't notice it on the on the previous Joad releases, so I wonder if uh, they did something different this time. Hmm. I, I didn't really notice that. I thought it was a very good listen, and it, it really goes by very quickly. It, when you think about the intensity and, and everything, I, I listened to the show in, in one sitting and I was like, wow, that that really is a powerful, compact statement that he had here. So I, I didn't notice any of those issues. OK, yeah, I kept having to turn it up in my car and and then as soon as the music started, OK, turn it back down. <laughs> I guess I'm getting old. <laughs> well, I, I think that pretty much covers this release and. There actually was another release since we last met, and 
That was the John Cougar Mellencamp record, although I guess he no longer uses Cougar, so I, I apologize <laughs> yeah. about that. Just John, yeah, just John Mellencamp. What did you think of this? There were three songs on there that Bruce played on, Wasted Days, which I think we touched on already, Did You Say Such a Thing, and A Life Full of Rain. Well, my first reaction to Did You Say Such a Thing is that it sounds exactly like his song Pop Singer back from, I don't know, I don't know what album it was on, at least I guess in the, in the mid to late 80s, and yeah, it was it was okay. Didn't really do much for me. And then the, and then what was the last the third song? The one he, he only plays rain. guitar. It's, on? it's it's a bit dirge like. Yes. What's the name of that one again? A life full of rain. Yeah, that one didn't do it for me either. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> it is what it is. It's always good to have Bruce uh, on 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 record. You and I have seen Mellencamp a couple of times in recent years, and we're certainly fans. This is not his best work. I I don't. Uh, I don't have any qualms saying that. And and Bruce being on there, it doesn't change my opinion of it. Wasted Days has a certain uh, quality to it because, of course, mm-hmm. what they're saying about and being at the end of life and, and looking back. And I, I thought there was a certain power to that. Did you say such a thing? Does nothing for me. And <laughs> A Life Full of Rain, the first time I heard it, I was like, eh, well, it's pretty interesting. And then I was like, I, I listened to it a couple more times and I was like, no, it doesn't do it for me either. <laughs> well, it, what's what's interesting is that you you got two of the greatest uh, Heartland rockers from the '80s, and none of these three songs really rock. <laughs> no, but uh, you know what they could have done in, in 1987 or '88 is much different than this. And you know, trying to recreate something from 40, 30 years ago is you know that that's not going to work. Well, and it might have been fun. And Bruce, of course, has done this with American Skin with Morello. If they had done something like a Pink Houses as a duet or something, that, I think that would have pumped people up. But obviously, that's not what Mel Cap is into right now. I understand that. So, look, it is what it is, and I, I, I think we've said enough about it. What do you think? <laughs> yeah, let's let's move on here. Tonight, we're going to be talking the Magic Tour. For this episode, we're going to focus on 2007. Next time, we'll pick up with 2008. And I think there's a lot of interesting things to discuss here. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. The Bruce had been uh, he had taken exits off E Street the last two years, 2005 Devils and Dust, 2006 with the Seeger Sessions, obviously. And it was their first return, first E Street album in, in five years since the rising. And things were uh, he was getting the, getting the band back together and they went out. And uh, there were some interesting outside factors uh, regarding uh, regarding Danny Federici's health that we'll talk about. We'll talk about later on. And. But Bruce came out. He had a nice, tight set list. Uh, you kind of fool around with it a little bit at first during the rehearsal shows, but he, they quickly found their groove. Yeah, this was a tour, at, and let's talk about the rehearsal shows. I, I think these rehearsal shows were among the strongest of the shows that took place in Asbury, <laughs> much stronger than the shows that would take place approximately 18 months later <laughs> to start the working on a dream tour because the first rehearsal show in 2009 was, Oh, that was an interesting one, but we'll, we'll talk about that another time <laughs> right here. He had a perspective that I think he wanted to impart on the audience. And really as with the best Springsteen tours, the, the structure of this tour really remained very stable all the way till the end. Now, as I said, we're going to talk about 2008 next time, but when, when you get to the end and, St. Louis and Kansas City, there's still quite a batch of magic songs being performed. And and as we know, in later years, that really hasn't been the case. 
pertain to new material. Yeah, he had an album that uh, that that he really loved, and he it had a message, as you said, and and the show re- reflected that message, and he came out and. It was boom, 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 and there was no uh, there was no escaping what he was trying to say, especially the last five songs of the of the main set. Well, and that's really the key, and and of course that's what I was referring to. Even as as we get into two thousand and eight, there was that structure. Now it wasn't fully present on opening night of the rehearsal shows, but as we know, he would come to play for a very long portion of the tour. Devil's Arcade, The Rising, Last to Die, Long Walk Home, and and then ending with Badlands. Really, he, he put together that package, and it was quite striking. And it was very reminiscent of the reunion tour, of course, where we had a five-pack there as well. But here he mixed new and old in, in a way that was extremely effective. And the Devil's Arcade into the Rising w- was a particularly powerful punch. I think kicking it off with Devil's Arcade was was very key. Um, that's such a powerful song in and of itself, and to have it end with with the heartbeat, and then heart the heart stops beating, and then going into the Rising before uh, Last to Die for a mistake. We know what he was talking about there, talking about there, talking about the Iraqi War, and then Long Walk Home. We got a we're still, we're still we're still walking that, and then basically Badlands is almost your. Uh, it can be used in anything, and and it really was set up quite well by by Long Walk Home. It really gave gave Badlands an, an extra punch that I don't want to say it was missing, but it certainly had a new urgency and it sounded fresh. It certainly did, and these songs remain so relevant today, uh, perhaps even more relevant today, especially in the case of Long Walk Home, as we've discussed many times before. And just going back to that first night at Convention Hall on September 24th, 2007, on on that night, he, he was still searching perhaps a little bit for the set. Badlands wasn't played at all that night. It wouldn't be played until the next night, which was the first night on the 25th that the five songs were played consecutive. But it was it was clear from what happened on that first night, which opened Radio Nowhere, Is Anybody Alive Out There, No Surrender, Gypsy Biker, which of course was one of the most powerful songs off of Magic and, and played just tremendously every night of the tour. Well, every night until the heat dropped it towards the end. And then that first night also we got a one-off performance of a full band, Empty Sky, which I thought it worked really well. It needed probably a little bit more rehearsal, but he never came back to it. My uh, my feeling on Empty Sky was that he wanted it to be basically a new version of of Darkness. He wanted it, because that's where where it is in the set. Um, Fourth song in, that's basically where it was played for the most part on the reunion tour. And he wanted to to update it to include references to 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 nine eleven basically, and I thought it worked well too. And I was kind of disappointed that it it never never came out again. Yeah, it was it was weird that it never returned because, it, as you're as you're noting, it had a power to it, and, and you're exactly right in that spot where darkness is often played. And coming out of Gypsy Biker, and, and then with the way the rest of the set flowed. It it really seemed like it could have been used again, but for whatever reason, he just, th- th- it, as we know, <laughs> some of these things are mysterious. Something gets played once, and even though it seemed to work 
for us in the audience, it, it obviously didn't work for him and it was never played again. Now, another thing is the set went on. He paired the promised land with living in the future. As we know, he often uses promised land to anchor sort of a political viewpoint within the show. It was paired very effectively in 2000, of course, with American Skin. And, and here, it, th- these two songs would be paired for much of the tour. Yeah, he would play Living in the Future and he would intro it by talking about all the things we love about our country and all the things that we now are part of the country. He was talking about rendition and habeas corpus at the time. But then when he when he followed that up with Promised Land, and I think Promised Land, as you said, it's it's pretty much we all want to live in, in a promised land. And it's as far as far from political as you can get. So but it's still is the reaching for a better future. So it always works so well, as you said, working with another more more political song because we can all agree, we can all agree on on that at, at least. Well, and you just pointed out somewhat uh, obliquely, uh, Promised Land was played before Living in the Future on night one. On night two of the rehearsal shows, they were reversed and they would remain like that for pretty much the entire tour. Yes, you are correct. Uh, he. Uh, yeah, he realized he needed to follow follow the future with Promised Land rather than the other way around. Just because it, if he loses anybody with this, with the political stuff, then he gets them back with with Promised Land. Now, on that first night, also, even though he didn't do the five pack as we defined it, starting with Devil's Arcade and ending with Badlands, he did do five songs that made a very notable impression. Lonesome Day, My Hometown, then followed by The Rising, Last to Die, and Long Walk Home. That, I think, would have also been a very effective five-pack. And My Hometown was a little misplaced, if I remember properly, because it's it slowed things now. down a little. <laughs> what? It's always misplaced these days. <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, it's, it really should be like the first song of the encore or something if it's going to be played. But, yeah, there was in the in, in, in a run of five faster songs and uh, that's probably why he went away from that for night two but by night two as we say he discovered these five songs and he put them into an order that clearly registered on him and i and i think registered on the entire audience uh, now the first night the other notable thing well thundercrack being played certainly was notable that was the first time it was played in the East street band show right i mean well, obviously in the modern times i'm talking about well, we're talking about with the the E Street Band as uh, as a unit. He obviously played at, at the holiday shows in two thousand one and two thousand three, and where most of the band was. But this was the first time it was just the E Street Band. And then following up to complete his theme, the show ended with American Land, and I don't even know if we need to say anything about that because it's just. <laughs> It puts the exclamation point on everything <laughs> that he had been saying for the entire evening. Well, I think what's interesting about it is that it was a song that um, he had done with the, with the Sessions Band uh, in 2006, uh, starting just before the American Leg ended in, in June. And then he, he played it every night uh, in the fall of, of 06 in Europe. And, you know. It was funny to say, well, here's a song that was first done by the Sessions Band, and now it's going to be done every night with the E Street Band. It was kind of a kind of a twist there. I remember that. It it it, it did seem a little out of left field because it had been a Sessions Band song, and it really took on, I think, a different tone. Of course, with with Max drumming, it it, it yeah. totally changed the force of the song for one thing. 
Oh yeah, Max is a obviously he's a total force of nature on just about every song, and but he really took it up a notch from from. But no, no offense to Larry Eagle, but uh, Larry Eagle is not a rock drummer, and Max just hit it out of the park every night. I, I think for the audience, it really became a favorite. I I don't know if we would have said that off the the sessions band. I keep wanting to call it Seeger. I don't know what the hell the name of that band is anymore. I think sessions band, Seeger sessions band, Seeger band. I don't care. All right. <laughs> Well, I I think the audience did really embrace American Land, certainly in a way. Well, it was a Springsteen original, for one thing. We'll talk about the Seeger Sessions tour at another time. I think for me and a lot of other people, as we've maybe touched on briefly previously, the lack of Springsteen material for a lot of the show was 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 problematic there. And certainly for me, left a. uh, an emotional disconnect that I normally don't have at, at Bruce shows, but the, the American land, it, it's such a powerful song. And he had gone through these really uh, a range of emotions during the show. And, and as I said, this really acted as the perfect exclamation point. Right. That's, that's a good way to put it. It was uh, it was kind of a celebration of our American land, even if some of the lyrics are a little bit darker in, in that respect, but, at the, but also I, now, correct me if I'm wrong, and I know you will. Uh, wasn't that the band intro song on this tour? It was. So he would. What what made it interesting or exciting for fans was that he would introduce the band, and then he would do as you've just seen the earth, <laughs> earth rock and pants drop and blah 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 E Street band, and he really drew that one out on that on this tour, and and I think that made it. Gave it a little bit more oomph for, for the fans, especially compared to what it was a year before. Yeah, it was big. There's no question about it. And it remains big. Hopefully we'll see it <laughs> at some point in the future. But uh, it, it, the, the song worked really well. Now, we left, I think when we left Convention Hall that first night, as I said, it, it really did register as one of the better rehearsal shows that we had seen there. And then we came back for night two, and I think the show was improved because he he did put the songs the five pack into place and Mm -hmm. and all of that there was something that did happen the second night that we should discuss (laughs) and that was the performance uh well it was a debut of a song called a town called heartbreak well it was the live debut it had been released on patty's played as a lays album about a actually not too not too far not too uh, much earlier I forget when exactly when her album came out, but yeah, it was the first time that a a, a non E Street song was played on state. Well, how do I put it? How do I put that? Um, well, I'm not sure that that's true because they had played "I Don't Want to Go Home" back but, in the '80s, but but it wasn't like on Steve's album. That's true. Steve had written it. And, and that's, then, of course, a sure classic. No, this was different. There's this no, was very different. No denying it. <laughs> Yeah, and, I mean, and, and I think it's important to point out that you and I both really like Patty. We we've enjoyed her music. We've seen her solo. It was a bit jarring. Now I think it worked better in Asbury than it would, and we're going to discuss what happened when we got to arenas. I, I obviously the Asbury crowd it tends to be more of a home crowd. Patty is I think very popular down there, so it, it was probably a little better received at the September twenty fifth show than it would be in some of the arenas. It was still, and again, nothing against the song. I, I, I think her albums are actually quite strong, especially Rumble Doll, which I love. 
but it was a bit jarring in the middle of a Springsteen show. It was very different. It, and it was one of these things where it's like, what did Bruce do? What did he screw up here to, to, to feel like he had to do this for, for Patty? And, and I, and I, and I got to thank the other band members. I know they're getting paid. You know, I know in some ways it may just be a, pay, a paycheck to them, but you know, Steven or, or, or Nils going, you know, I've got, I've had these great songs, these great albums for, for years. And, you know, we've never played black books or we've never played shine silently or, or forever with the E3 band, but, but she's getting her song and just kind of wonder what, what was going through their minds. I always felt like it, it was true. Her album had just come out. I, I think probably she didn't get the chance to promote it in the way she wanted because right. the E street band was going on tour Right. But I just never really understood that if I recall properly, I don't think he even introduced it. No, I'd have to. He the song just uh, most of the time just started. Right. And it was happened to be a song that she was singing and he he was not. He he sang backup vocals. Right. Well, they sang it as a as a full duet. Oh, right. Okay. And it was actually it was really effective, I thought, as as an acoustic number. It's not a. It's not a bad song at all. It's just oh, that's that's true too. We should point that out because w- weren't there multiple arrangements of it? Yeah, there was the acoustic arrangement, and then there was more of the full band one. That uh, so, I remember. The- so in Asbury, it was more of the acoustic arrangement. Yes, it was. Right. I think that's actually probably why it went over a little bit better. Possibly, I'm, or I mean, obviously, acoustic. The smaller the venue, the better the acoustic uh, arrangements go over. I mean, certainly an acoustic version in Madison Square Garden was not going to be was not going to be very effective, or at least it's really not going to grab the crowd the way that uh, even a full band version would have. And that was what was played in arenas. So we're, we're definitely going to come back to that. But first, there was another rehearsal show at Continental Airlines Arena on September 28th. This was he, the show that he had played 925 in Asbury with one very notable addition. And right. I, if, I, if I recall properly, you and I were standing next to one another <laughs> yes. when, when the song started, right? And it, it was, it, in many ways, it was the fruition of stuff that we hoped to hear over the years. And it was really well done. Of course, I'm talking about the full band version of Reason to Believe. Right, yeah, you're talking about Electric Nebraska material? Is that yes. what you mean? Okay. Yeah. Well, this one... I mean, we have no idea what the electric sessions of that of this song sounded like, but this was that bluesy ZZ Top thing going on, the spirit in the sky. And I remember it took us a long time to figure out what it was, and I feel like I'd spent a lot of time listening to to this song from the Devils and Dust tour, so I was familiar with a lot of the the harmonica lines and and, and riffs, and that's how I first recognized it. And it turned out to be the this was the barn burner of of the tour. It's almost like going back and listening to a to a show from from 2007. If it doesn't have reason, I'm like, well, it's not really worth listening to. <laughs> oh, it was it was magnificent. And again, fitting it into this theme that he established during the show, I, I think all these songs tie together. The idea of people needing to find some reason to believe. You look further on, you, you mentioned the themes of living in the future, and, and then you get the Devil's Arcade, where the character has been through this very traumatic experience, and, and it, literally every day is struggling to find their existence. 
And uh, that song ends with, after Bruce's spellbinding solo every night, it ends <laughs> with a heartbeat. And the heartbeat is the sign of life. And and, and all these things, I think, link back together. Uh, Radio Nowhere, we said, is there anybody alive out there? And, and, and you went from, is there anybody alive out there to finding a reason to believe? And then these characters struggling with their existence before you get the Badlands. And, and, and that's why I think this set was, was really so brilliant. Right. And I think from a pacing point of view, uh, I mean, when he first did reason to believe it was kind of in that middle, middle segment, but when he, he moved it right after magic, uh, after he talked about, it's not about, not about magic. It's about tricks. And then the, the, the acoustic, the kind of, kind of a spooky acoustic version of, of magic. And then it would, then he went into reason to believe with starting with the slow guitar, the, the little bit of the harmonica and the buildup of it really worked I mean, spectacularly as from a pacing point of view. And then it went into some some Ishri classics, you know, such as such as Candy's Room Night. She's the one that kind of thing. Yeah, these shows were extremely well paced throughout the entire tour. And and really, this was the last tour. Well, you can make the argument also, of course, Wrecking Ball, uh, which early on he did also have a very, very tight structure and and a very compelling narrative after Wrecking Ball. He, he he sort of got away from that. But the, here, I think, and this may be a big statement to make, you'll tell me what you think of it, really, in a way, is this not the most comparable set in terms of how it's structured to the Darkness Tour? Um, either this or the Tunnel of Love Tour, I thought, had, a, it had some similarities, especially specific songs like She's the One and... And even even something like all that heaven will allow, I thought uh, worked comparatively with uh, with with darkness from that tour. I know that's people are going to be aghast at my saying that, but I always thought tunnel felt similar to darkness. Well, I I see what you're saying there, and of course that was a highly structured show as well. I think thematically here with with what he was touching on, tunnel was was much more aimed at matters of the heart, as we know. This was really aimed at matters of. I want to say the country. Yeah, that may be it may be overly broad, but really, he was talking about those things. I mean, that's what no, that's what he that's what he was going with. That's what he was going for. He was out there to make a statement about the state of the country and about the direction we were going based on the, our foreign policy. Hello, everybody. I'm Bruce, and I'm Nolan, and this is the Corner of Gray Street Podcast. As longtime Dave Matthews Band fans, we set out to create a podcast to dive deep into the past, present, and future of DMB. Not only do we recap and review shows within an ongoing tour, but we revisit past shows from throughout the band's history, conduct interviews with a wide variety of guests with ties to DMB, and create unique and exclusive content like our Concerts on the Corner series. Whether you're a fan of the band, we're just a fan of great music. We think you'll find something you'll enjoy. We can't wait to see you on the corner of Gray Street. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. 
We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. So uh, the tour actually starts on October 2nd in Hartford, and you and I attended that show together. Yes, we did. I thought, I thought again, it, it was very similar to the rehearsal shows, especially the last one with a couple of couple, couple of tweaks with, with reason to believe coming after magic and very tight show. Very, it was a very tight show. And, and it, this show, and I, I don't think you did this too often, it, it, a town called Heartbreak was followed by darkness. And I, I felt that uh, keeping in this theme that we've been talking about, I, I thought that darkness worked actually really well in the middle of the show. It's not often played in the middle of a show like that. As you pointed out earlier in this episode, it's generally been played more towards the start of shows. It makes a point, you know, four or five songs in. And, and here it, it went darkness and then he lightened things up a little with Darlington County. And then it went to Devil's Arcade. So you, you, it was it was interesting. And I don't know. And he probably didn't think it was fully effective because it went from darkness to a little bit more fun and frivolity with Darlington County, then back to Devil's Arcade. What, what did you make of that? Well, what I make of it is that this show, as, as we said, is very structured. Radio Nowhere through Promised Land, that sequence of songs was was done every night. Um, I mean, obviously, ties up the second song in the set uh, at Hartford. It was ties up Bind. The next night in Philadelphia, No Surrender, um, Lonesome Day, Night. You know, they they all kind of they were all there. And then reason to after reason to believe, Night. She's the one. Again, some more East Street classics, classics kind of rotated in and out. And then it was Living the Future, followed by Promised Land, as we discussed. And then at every show, there were basically had a three three song wild card set mini set um before it went back into devil's arcade and really you that's where all the stuff happened i mean at this show as you said town called heartbreak darkness darlington the next night brilliant disguise my hometown darlington and then it was and you know two nights later town called heartbreak incident and then to cadillac ranch and it was that's where the wild cards were that's where the patty spotlight songs such as town called heartbreak and then later on it was brilliant disguise tunnel of love tougher than the rest and you, you never know what you got and, and that's where you got east street shuffle and sandy and working on the highway at, at the, on november 19th so it was a pretty um those were those were the wild cards right there nowhere else <laughs> and, and you had in the encores of the show uh a moment now, and I actually may remember this a little better than you do. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, go on. 
Waiting on a Sunny Day was played after Born to Run, and, and I actually felt that this was one of the most effective versions of Waiting on a Sunny Day, to, exempting the Rising Tour, because when the Rising Tour material was fresh, I, I, I thought it worked all extremely well. But as we know, Waiting on a Sunny Day, as it later on became a child sing-along or whatever, we hadn't hit that point here yet. And he played Waiting on a Sunny Day in the encores after Born to Run and before American Land. And thematically, that really tied the show together. That we truly were, it's, it's what we were talking about in the country. The country really was Waiting on a Sunny Day, in his opinion. And that was what he was imparting. And it was, it was a very rocking version of the song. Okay, that that's what I wanted to hear, just like the rocking version of it. Because otherwise, if he starts starts with just the plain old acoustic acoustic intro like he did on the on the rising tour and and at some tour since, I don't I don't see that working at all. But it sounds like he went into it pretty hard. Uh, it's been a while since I've listened to that tape, so i'm I'm not really remembering too too well right now. Um, hey, and that's and that's where that song should be. It should be the encore. It should not be in the main set. Well, and, and another interesting facet to point out here, of course, is there's a song missing from the show, and, and that's Dancing in the Dark. Waiting in that spot was, was pretty powerful, I thought, and I'm surprised he didn't stick with it a little longer. But, of course, Dancing would be back within a few shows and would stay for pretty much the rest of the tour. Yeah, I just wonder if he thought maybe he needed something even bigger than, than Born to Run in that spot uh, just to kind of keep taking the encores higher and higher. I'm not really sure basically waiting on a sunny day is i mean it's an acoustic led song well but that um, night but I, if i recall properly it started with max on the drums and it kicked in you know harder than we'd seen it certainly on the rising tour where it started with the dual acoustic guitars as we know by 2016 2017 the feel of the encores became i mean wrote. a little stale is that uh yes uh, yes and, and Certainly, we hadn't gotten to that here yet in, in 2007, but the placement of Waiting on a Sunny Day, as, as I think back on it now, in that one usage of the song, did sort of give the encores a little bit different feel than when dancing is being played because it's his biggest hit and, and the crowd goes crazy. And, and, and I know you got to give the crowd that release at the end of the night and, and they're getting it with Born to Run, they're getting it with dancing. Uh, I think that it helps explain the the overusage of shout the last decade. So I, I get it, but it, th that was that was one thing you know that that I think was notable from those first couple of nights of this tour that that then went away. One more note on on the encore. I mean, he opened the encores with "Girls in Her Summer Clothes" and "The Thundercrack" a song, a new song just released that that day. I think it was. And then Thundercrack, which isn't exactly well known among the casuals, so maybe he felt after after do, doing these two relative, relatively unfamiliar songs that he needed to to go uh, with a bigger hit instead of Sunny Day. Even though at that point Sunny Day was was pretty popular among those who at least had seen the seen the Rising tour. Perhaps, and and certainly this was probably the most unique set of encores he's done. In the reunion era, I, you could make That's the point true. about the, you could make the point about the reunion tour because, of course, we had the the stunning version "If I Should Fall Behind" and, and a, a new song which has become basically a classic in "Land of Hope and Dreams." But you still had 
Born to Run and Thunder Road every night. You yeah. had Bobby Jean mixed in there. You often had Hungry Heart. You know, so yeah. he he gave you the hits, and then and then he ended the show with 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 those two lesser known choices. But here he he really did come up with an encore that that was really stands distinct from from the rest of the reunion era. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. It's uh, Girls in Summer Clothes, a new song. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Works well for me, and the song he hadn't done in thirty years. I mean, that's yeah. That 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 freshened it up, freshened it up quite a bit. Now, I I never felt at the beginning of the tour, which maybe cuts a little against what we were just saying, but girls in their summer clothes never seemed fully realized to me. It got a lot better as the tour went on. Well, it's a pretty complex song, actually. I think there was a lot of stuff going on in the in the studio take of it. Um, you know, it's probably his most one of his most Beach Boys s songs in in some way, and. And yeah, it took it took a bit for them to to really learn how to play it and how to play it confidently. And and at the and at the start of every tour, there are some songs that are going to take a while before they click. And on in two thousand seven, that was this one. They left Hartford. They went to Philadelphia. I think the only notable thing. I mean, all these shows are notable, but we're not going to go over each one individually. But there is a notable moment in Philly because a town called Heartbreak. Were you at that show? I was. Claudia and I did attend that. It was a Saturday night. So Um, a town called Heartbreak was followed by incident. And apparently (laughs) it caused quite a stir in the in the arena. Well, actually, the town called Heartbreak was done in in a full band arrangement. It actually had a pretty cool uh organ intro from danny i I remember actually going like what's going on here what what could this be before the before they they kicked into with the lyrics and then yeah you had the you had the mass bathroom breaks especially on a saturday night there uh with all due respect to to philly fans but uh so then town called heartbreak ends and you got the opening notes to incident on 57th street and you saw all these people like practically sprinting down the the aisles and 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 down the stairs to get back to their seat to, to hear that classic. It was it was actually pretty amusing. That is that hysterical. Now, do we obviously he did that on purpose? I, I mean, I would assume so. I would assume so. But again, it's it's in that the, that little three song wild card set. So wherever we're just about any Eastry classic was, uh, or even non Eastry classic was was on the table. So maybe it wasn't as as what may it may not have been Bruce like, well, if you guys are going to take a bathroom break or a beer break during my wife's song, then I'm going to hit you back with one of my classics to, to make you pay. I don't know if it was that deliberate or not. Very funny. Yes, it was. Now, you were also, of course, at the Meadowlands. Yes, yes. Uh, the second been, night, there are some interesting choices in there. Yeah, you had the talent on a heartbreak incident combo again, but then he but then he pulled out your own worst enemy for the for the tour debut and. Hey, more new material. I liked it. it. It worked out really well. And then you got to you look at Cynthia between Living in the Future and Promising. That was that was pretty damn cool. It's one of my one of my favorites, especially off tracks. Let, let's talk about your own worst enemy, which didn't get many outings on this tour, which I, I felt was very unfortunate. It, it's one of my favorite songs from the record. It, it's another song that I think is probably pretty complex for them to play. Mm-hmm. Do you think that he he felt that the show was was dark enough and had enough new material that it was it was only going to get occasional outings or what? Yeah, that that would be my guess. I mean, looking at the first part of the show, I mean that's all pretty structured, and 
Your Own Worst Enemy is kind of a kind of a mid-tempo song, so it's not exactly something you can drop in right after Lonesome Day, or you know. And then if he does it after Magic, it's you kind of you, you might be losing some people with two, you know, the 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 quiet Magic into the mid-tempo Your Own Worst Enemy. So yeah, it's just a matter of too many <laughs> too many new songs, too many new good new songs, and just not enough slots in the in the in the show to play them. He has later reinvented Your Own Worst Enemy. We've seen it at Light of Day. Uh, I think he did it with Grushecki a couple times. Oh, it was an acoustic, acoustic song, which right. is just – Yeah. Yeah. And that, yeah, you're right. That did work really well then. But, of course, he, he's – you know, look where he is. He's at, this, at these, you know, 1,500-seat theaters uh, on the Jersey Shore. He, anything's going to work well in, the, in, in that setting. Yeah, that's very true. And after the Meadowlands, they headed up to Ottawa and – this is a notable show because of a guest appearance by Win and Regime from Arcade Fire, who happened to be one of my favorite bands. And they did a version of State Trooper, which which killed. And then they also did Keep the Car Running, an Arcade Fire song with the E Street Band. That's a great combo. I would have loved to have been there for that. It worked really well. It's one of the what two State Troopers with the E Street Band over the last 20 years. Actually, over the last, God, what's my math? 35, 40 years? I don't know. How long has it been since 85 or 84? It's at um, 37 years, 38 okay. years now. Yeah. There you go. So, yeah. And then they and they rehearsed it. They they worked it up in soundcheck and both for both songs, Keep the Car Running as well. And they came out and nailed it. And I, you know, I think it was uh, in 2003 when Bruce finally said, hey, if we're going to have a if we're going to have guests on stage, we might as well have them do something, do something, do something new, do something that's them and introduce their music to my fans. I remember uh, bringing Emmy Lou Harris on, and they did Across the Border in 03, and that worked much better than, say, Southside doing Hungry Heart, as he did at one show. Well, and it's worth pointing out that Arcade Fire had covered State Trooper previously, yes. and th- th- this is this is a show, uh, of course, we're going to say this a lot as we go through the Magic Tour, because really, they should probably just release the entire tour. <laughs> But this would be a show that would certainly be high on my list. It's not a show that I attended, but I, I would love to hear this show as an archive. Yes. And one thing I, w- I want to point out is that uh, the Patty Spotlight song is not Town Called Heartbreak in this one. It's, it's tougher than the rest. And and that's one of the ones that would be played a little bit more frequently. That one in Brilliant Disguise as, as the tour progressed. And it's almost like I want to ask Bruce, you know, why didn't you just start off with Tougher Tunnel and and brilliant disguise from the get-go instead of instead of her own song but well he was promoting a record i think we know that <laughs> i guess so but uh you know still let's let's focus on the bruce material at bruce shows of course you were also at the garden now i know i was not there the second night is considered to be a a very strong show as well that was the premiere of uh meeting across the river and jungle land on this tour yeah it was and that was another strong set uh i mean as they all are and it was just a uh, nice little three song, three song wild cards included, as you said, meeting in, in, in Jungle Land. And it went really, really well. Well, one of the things about this tour is it, the nights, even though he did change certain songs up from night to night, I think walking out of these shows, not to say that on other tours were like some nights were like, oh, it was great. The, the, the other nights were like the show sucked. I mean, very few shows when you go to see Bruce <laughs> suck, but there was a consistency on this tour, especially early on. 
they were totally locked in. And, and one of the other things we did not mention is that these shows were much more compact. Yes. Uh, running about 215, 220 in certain cases. We're going to get to a couple of shows coming up that didn't even run that long. The, the, the compactness really, really helped. And, and I think I've made this point at other times on our, on our show. I would rather two hours and 20 minutes of a very tight show than three hours and 45 minutes of just dragging 10th Avenue out for 20 minutes, 14 minutes of glory days, 16 minutes of twist and shout. I, I'm not, I'm not <laughs> knocking any of that, but the, artistically, these shows were so satisfying. And that's why I mentioned the Darkness Tour. I, I think there is that similarity does does really hit home here. And it, the, this is really the last type of show that he did like this, I, I think, would you say ever? Well, you said that the early part of the Wrecking Ball Tour had some, was relatively compact as well, but but not to this extent. These are short, tight songs, Night, Candy's Dream, with three minutes. That really is significant for the pacing. It reminds me of what we said about No Nukes. Now, I'm not comparing these shows to No Nukes. People don't have heart attacks. Uh, <laughs> But Why the, not? It's a classic East Street band here. Yeah, it is true. The but it's like they it, they were wound up, and these shows they just came out firing on all cylinders. He knew that they were only playing a certain amount of time. The show wasn't going to be lasting three hours or three and a half hours, which I do think makes a difference in terms of their stamina. Now we don't know what was going on with Danny. Was was the compactness of the show perhaps in consideration of him? The first we heard that he was leaving the tour was only a couple of days before Boston, and we'll get to that in, in a little while. But for whatever the reason, this was a highly thought out and compact show with a message, and it, it, it just it, it, it works spectacularly well. well there's, there's, no, there's no filler here. Uh, you got a radio nowhere, as I said, you know, four minutes, night, three minutes. You, know, you can look. Of course, that was a was a wild card. That's three minutes, and even the last to die, long walk home. There, there weren't. They didn't. There was nothing added to it. There was no bloat here. Even Badlands was was pretty much uh, as compact as as it's been over the last twenty some odd years. There was certainly no building a house, although that occurred <laughs> in two thousand and eight. Yeah, that was that was the following summer, and uh, yeah, a lot of houses to build. Didn't need uh, those houses. Look, there, there, there is something to be said for sure, as you're pointing out, for the four to five minute rampaging rock song without anything breaking it up, without without stopping to tell a story. Now, I love when Bruce tells stories. And of course, he was telling one large story here. But this it it it, it, it rocked. I mean, that was yeah. what these shows were. They came out. He said, is there anybody alive out there? And then he he showed you <laughs> what life was, and it was very very enjoyable. Uh, so yeah, they is there, is there anybody alive out there? And then they were off and running, and there was like I said, there was very very few spots to catch your breath and and relax for the next two hours and twenty minutes or whatever it was. And I think there's something as yeah, there's something to be said for that. As and then they moved west, and 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 I saw the shows out here. They were they were excellent. The the two shows in Oakland were very very strong. He did racing the street for the first time in Oakland. 
uh, in L.A. He had a lot of celebrities in the crowd. He 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 actually in L.A. did a town called Heartbreak both nights. Up, Rita Wilson was there, and many of Patty's friends. <laughs> and the, they, the, they also did Tunnel of Love. Yeah, Tunnel there, of Love was both was, in was amazing. And in LA. And, and, and of course, the other notable thing from the October thirtieth show at the Sports Arena was uh, the return of the coffin. It was the <laughs> It was the eve of Halloween. He emerged from a coffin and that led into Radio Nowhere. It was, it was a lot of fun. And they, they actually released that when at the time they were doing the, the video releases oh, of, yeah. of, of brief portions of the show. Now, oddly, when they did that, they actually only showed the story with the coffin. And then as soon as Radio Nowhere started, they faded out. It seems like they could have just given you Radio Nowhere. Well, but yeah, yeah they, it was very frustrating because they they rarely did release the entire song. It was like here's here's the first two minutes of ties that bind. Gee, thanks. Tell me about it. And and back then also, you know, YouTube was not the same force it was now. Like even if you go looking for video of these shows, it doesn't exist in the same way it would ten years later. So it, the, when they were putting out video, was it was it was worthwhile because that was in many ways the footage you were getting from that show. So a yeah, little bit of a bummer they didn't they didn't allow complete songs, but I'm sure they had their reasons. Yeah. And they did they did they didn't put it up on YouTube. Was even was YouTube even a thing then? It was. Um, it it okay, certainly but, existed. They put it up on on, on BruceSpringsteen.net. Yes. Yeah, so it was a little bit different than 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 it would be now, where they, hey, here's the new video for here's a video for the new song by Bruce. It's on YouTube. <laughs> then it was they actually actually posted it to the official page, which is a lot different than it is now. Moving on after the West Coast, uh, probably the one notable thing uh, in the Palace of Auburn Hills, he premiered "I'll Work for Your Love," another underappreciated and perhaps underplayed song from magic it, it worked extremely well live yes it did and uh, as he did at auburn hills uh i'll work for your love and tunnel of love were, were paired quite nicely he did that the first night in uh in dc he did it the first night in uh in boston too so that's a nice little combination that hey i would i would have loved to have seen more of that yeah, it, th those songs really uh, should be played more. Of course, we say that all the time. But Every fucking song I mean, should be played more. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, of course, we <laughs> we have to stop saying that. Anyway, it, the next show, well, after Auburn Hills, they went to uh, D.C. You were there for that, right? Yes, we, we went down. And the first night was actually Veterans Day. And uh, Promised Land was Bruce made a... Bruce had invited a whole bunch of, of, of guys from from Walter Reed, which was the 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 Army military hospital in uh, in the area. And so you had a lot of guys in wheelchairs and, and missing and missing limbs right to the side of the stage. And Bruce made a, a big point to dedicate promised land to them. And it was actually a pretty, pretty powerful moment. Yeah, that that sounds incredibly powerful. I can't even imagine what those guys must have been thinking during Devil's Arcade. I can't either. And it was just, it was, uh, yeah, it was actually a pretty special show uh, just because it was Veterans Day. And so much of this material, as, as we've said, was was about the the foreign foreign engagement in Iraq. After D.C., they went to Pittsburgh where Shecky made an appearance on stage for Code of Silence. And then they wound up and and here's where we're going to land. November 15, 2007 in Albany, you, you were at the show, right? I was not. 
You were not. Oh, was, okay. We, we did. We chose. We were going to Boston, so we didn't want to. We didn't. We didn't feel the need to go to Albany as well. But it was well covered by tapers. I think there was like four or five actually excellent, strong recordings <laughs> from this one show. It was an embarrassment of riches. <laughs> Do you remember it, it was either that day or maybe the day before that we heard that Danny was unfortunately having a reoccurrence of his cancer and would be leaving the tour? Yeah, it was right around uh, this show. I, I forget whether it was the day before or the day of, but yeah, that was basically when we found out. And, and clearly Bruce made up the set with that news in mind. Promised Land was followed by Sandy and E Street Shuffle, giving Danny a nice spotlight. Yeah, that's that's the best way to put it. They were he was going to really give Danny a, a time to shine uh, before he, before he left the tour. And at, at the time, I think the plan was for him to come back, get the treatment, and then he'll be back in two thousand eight. But that wasn't wasn't to be. And so that brings us to Boston. If I remember correctly, I did. I think I had a ticket for night two. It was it was going to be the last show of the American Leg for two thousand and seven. I wasn't 100% going, but then we unfortunately had heard this news about Danny and myself and a lot of other people who may not have been planning on going to that did make their way up to Boston. I did not see the first night. You you were at the first night, right? Yes. Yes. We went to both nights. And actually, I'm, as I said earlier, I, I really enjoyed that one. Uh, yeah, I'll work for your love. Tunnel of love combination was really effective. And, and Jackson Cage, another short to the point rocker uh, was played that night. So it kept in with the nice tight uh, set list concept. Yeah, I was sorry I missed that one. And and I took the train up the next day and, and it was November 19, 2007, which unfortunately we now know stands as the final show with the full E Street Band, the official members of the E Street Band, and uh, while Danny would make one more appearance, as we all know, in 2008, this was it for a complete show. As I remember it, I, I think even though there had been no announcement, most of the fans knew what was going on. Yes, right? I think, yes. By, the, by that night, it word was out. Um, it was circulating among fans, and remember there was a there was a Danny chant at one point maybe maybe even multiple times during the show and what really strikes me the main memory I had from the show regarding Danny was watching Nils go up to basically he would go up next to Danny on, on Danny's organ riser and play next to him for 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 good chunks of uh, of songs and that always kind of that always touched me I always thought that was, uh, you know, they were on the same side of the stage for all those years, uh, going back to obviously to 84, and he was going to be missed. Let's talk about this night in its entirety. The show, and of course, anyone who wants to listen to it can. There's <laughs> The archive is amazing from this night, and, and it was certainly one of the best shows of the Magic Tour, and was the really the only choice at when they went to, to release a show from 2007 as the first one to pick. This was a show that had an intensity that I don't think we have seen too often in the reunion era. There was, it was, the intensity was on stage. It was in the audience, which as we noted, did seem to know what was going on. 
and and they came out and it was not in any way depressing because you could think i mean what must have been going through their minds on stage knowing that this was going to be the 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 last show that danny played now i i do as you pointed out they they were hoping he was going to come back i don't know how real that hope it was I mean, obviously, as as we know, within a few months, he, he would make one more appearance. And then shortly thereafter, tragically, he he passed away. So I, it's hard to know what was going on on that stage. But just the intensity of the performances and, and, and the way that Danny was highlighted that night, th- there was really a, a lot of love, both for, as you pointed out, Nils on his riser there was a lot of love for Danny in that building, both on the stage and in the crowd. That that's what stands out to me. And when I listened to the show straight through again, preparing for this, it it, it really struck me again. Oh, absolutely. They wanted to, he was her brother and he wanted, they wanted him to go out, you know, on the off chance that it was, uh, it was his last show. They were going to go, they were going to go send him off in style. And, and the intensity of those emotions really made this one, made this one special. Um, and then not only did they do the the Sandy East Street Shuffle combination, they also did 10th Avenue Freeze Out, which, as Bruce likes to say, is a story of the band. And so that one, that one actually had extra residence that night. Uh, that is, in my opinion, one of the best versions, if not the best version of 10th Avenue, the reunion era. Talking about a tightness. And an intensity and the audience being into a song by that point in the encores, there was that place was flying. And (laughs) that was just that was an unbelievable version of the song. I know you're not the biggest fan of Kitty's Back, but it led into a version of Kitty's Back that was it was it was powerful. And, And of course, Danny plays a big role on Kitty's Back and he was highlighted throughout the entire middle portion of the song. And, and it, it was, it was a magnificent night. As you said, he, he was their brother. And, you know, by that extension, the audience is it look, we it's, it's corny in a way, but I mean, we know it is true. I mean, it's, it, it's like one big, sometimes dysfunctional, but <laughs> one big family. And, and it, it, it was really in, in, very sad circumstances uh a a wonderful wonderful night and and i i don't know how you know the band looks back on it but i know for me that it it was one of the most memorable nights i've spent in an arena watching a a rock band play There, there was something very special that night yeah there was and i don't know how they got through uh this hard land especially with the the ending, stay hard, stay hungry, stay alive, if you can, lyrics. Uh, I had a, had, I had a, had a bout of, v of emotion when <laughs> during those lines, and I can't imagine how, how they sang it, how Bruce sang it, and how the rest of the band played on it, but they did. Well, it was the way that entire set was constructed, Reason to Believe, which is certainly, as we pointed out, a very important song in the set, went into a rampaging version of Darkness, and... You know, you don't want to overanalyze and be too literal uh, about these things, but truly there was a darkness on the edge of town that night. It was an incredibly powerful decision for Bruce to play some of these songs. You'll note also, I mean, you you mentioned This Hard Land. Promised Land was not played on on this this night. This Hard Land replaced it. Yeah. 
And I, I think I, half I, the crowd thought it was Promised Land when it first started because of the way the harmonica intro was was played. But uh, I think that's one of the only arrangements or performances of that arrangement of the song. It was very unique because normally Bruce starts off on the harmonica himself, and right. and he did count into that, and the band kicked in. I don't believe right. there's ever been another version where the band played from the, from the start of the song. So certainly, as we note, uh, from 2007, I mean, this was the obvious choice to release for the archive series. It was the first show released from that year. And only, only show released so far. Yeah, and hopefully there will be others. But th this one had to be released. I mean, this is an important night in the history of the band uh, and we know it stands as the final full performance of the official E Street Band in its entirety. When we left that night, we were certainly hoping Danny would return. But as we know, that was not meant to be. Well, I remember at the time, it was, as I said, it was known um, that he was leaving the tour. But it wasn't official yet. And they actually, I remember back on the Backstreet website, they didn't have a write-up of the show yet. They had the set list. They got the, got the set list up either late that night or early the next morning. Um, but they had no write-up of the show because it hadn't been – they wanted to let uh, Bruce Inc., as we like to call them, announce that Danny was going to be taking that leave of absence uh, going forward. And so they uh, they gave they gave Bruce Inc. that space, and then I guess it was like either the next day or two days. I think it was two days later that uh, this 2008 uh, – the first 2008 leg was announced anyway. The other uh, we we Danny was given moments to shine, of course, during Sandy and E Street Shuffle, and then I, uh, even though we may not be fans of working on the highway, I it, it was interesting because he did give you that release there. Although <laughs> that's a good point. That's actually with, a very with, good. With point. working on the highway before going into Devil's Arcade, and the I I, I think it was needed because. Now, and of course, working on the highway, if you really analyze the lyrics, is, <laughs> it can be considered oh, okay. a little on the dark side as well. Well, but, come on. A, a guy takes an underage girl, they go to Florida, and the guy, and the guy gets hauled back and thrown in jail. Come on. But come on, the, the way it's played during these shows is, <laughs> is for fun. And, and he did <laughs> drop it in there, uh, giving you a breather after Danny had his moments on Sandy and E Street Shuffle before going into Devil's Arcade. The version of Devil's Arcade on this night was, I, it was Titanic. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was totally tremendous. It was, I haven't listened to every version of, of, of the song, but uh, this one was pretty epic compared to the other, compared to at least some others that I've listened to. And yeah, the, uh, I mean, there was actually emotion in, on this song. From there, they did make the announcement that Danny was leaving the tour, that he was going to be replaced by Charlie Giordano, who, of course, had played the year before with Bruce and the Sessions Band. And there was how many? Uh, let's see. There was uh, three, four, five. There was about 10 shows, right? 13 looks like my count was 13, but my county was okay, not all 13. the best. There, there were 13 shows that were going to be played in Europe to end the year. He was going to Europe and doing sort of a barnstorming run to set up the very large European tour he'd be doing the following summer. Now, these shows, uh, neither you nor I saw them. Well, of course, they served to really work Charlie into the band in his new role. Yeah, I mean, Charlie had actually been following the tour the last... He had been in Boston. I think he was even in Albany. And so he had been kind of following and looking at what Danny was doing and 
remember somebody said he was listening to probably some kind of inner ear monitor to to Danny's to Danny to what Danny was playing so he would get get familiar with uh, with what he needed to do and they uh, they got him up to speed in Europe and you and you'll notice only two songs were added to the set I guess three yeah. songs rather were added to the set in Europe and that's over 13 shows that's actually kind of surprising compared to how many different sh- songs came in and out on over the course of the US tour well, uh, he was playing mainly one show per city, and they had a new band member. It makes total sense. Oh, I'm, I'm I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm not saying I'm not surprised. I'm just saying that it was just that was the reason why they. That was a reason that there was no set list variation. Yes. Uh, well, a hundred percent. And as we know, Charlie did get up the speed. The tour ended in London. Uh, on December 19th, 2007, which actually is one of the, now that I'm realizing it, Bruce had rarely played in the reunion era that late into December. Again, I think they wanted to set up the, the 2008 European tour, uh, which was, of course was going to be a stadium tour. And my guess is just recollecting on it. Now the, the tickets probably went on sale right around this time for the following summer. Right. I would imagine so. So they, they ended in London and, Patty actually was not at. Was she at none of the shows in Europe? Uh, yeah, I don't think she made it to any yeah, of those. Yeah, she did not make the trip. No, she so didn't. They, so they had a new member of the band, and Patty was not present. But from everything we've heard, these shows continued the strong run that they were on in the States. And, and as the year came to an end, they'd have a couple of months off before returning in 2008. Yeah, they had a full slate of touring ahead of them for, for 2008. And unfortunately, Danny's passing had a had a major impact on, on the, some of the some of the directions that the shows went in but uh it's uh it was still a heck of a year for bruce on the road yeah we're gonna get into that next time but there's several segments to the tour in 2008 and it really is one of the higher points of touring in the reunion era yeah i think you have something uh something to say about some of those shows <laughs> yes well we will talk about that weekend through the midwest for sure but that's the next time <laughs> Right now, I'm going to close it down and we'll do our ending spiel. None but the Bravest presentation of Bull Market Entertainment and a part of Evergreen Podcasts on the web. We're at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. On Twitter, we're at NBTB Podcast. So for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you further on up the room. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.